campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the Political Pipeline. We're going to be joined today by Kelly Dittmar from the Center for American Women in Politics to talk about the women getting involved in politics as the country continues to reckon with the current administration, hashtag Me Too, and the impact of public policy on women's economic equality. Quality. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us, men, women, were you one of the over 1 million people who marched on Saturday? And if you were, we'd love to know why. What are you trying to change? Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And as you call in with your stories and your comments, I just have to share one on the newest stats from awards season in Hollywood. I'd like to send a shout out to the 45 women who were nominated for their work in film this year by the Oscars. And in particular, the 35 who are not actresses, not nominated in a gender-specific category. These women include directors, animators, screenwriters, cinematographers, sound mixers, editors, production designers. And while they represent only 22% of the people who were nominated for awards, they are giving our girls an expanded notion of what they can be when they grow up. So congratulations to all of you, and thank you for the great work you've done and all you've done to help us see the world in a different way. Which also brings me to the focus of today's show and the question of what else can we be when we grow up and the growing wave of women who are emerging into politics and the related question of how we get more women to run for office and engage in public Public service, importantly at every level and on both sides of the aisle. Helping us explore this today is one of my favorite guests, Kelly Dittmar. Kelly's a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics and an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University, Camden. She's the author of Navigating Gendered Terrain, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Campaigns, as well as multiple book chapters on gender and American politics. Her research focuses on gender and American political institutions, including Congress, with a particular focus on how gender informs campaigns and the impact of gender diversity in policy and political decisions, priorities, and processes. So in other words, the perfect guest for today's show. So with that, let me say, Kelly, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, now on the heels of the second March in a 12-month period, um, what's changing that you can see from your research and your perspective? What's been happening since the last March? Sure. So over the last year, um, particularly even before the march, since the election of 2016, uh, we have seen, and it's been well documented, as you know, in media and elsewhere, um, real energy among women and particularly among progressive women uh, to become engaged in politics in different ways and in ways that they might not have been engaged before. Uh, We know historically that women have been active politically in many ways in their communities, in philanthropy, in advocacy and activism. But what we're seeing shift this year, I think, in part, um, is a shift to more formal participation in politics, to running for office, to donating to candidates, to starting political organizations that might help other candidates. Um, and that's really important. And I think it's part of 
women making their voices heard. So they made their voices heard by marching, and now they're making their voices heard by running. So I want to back up for a second to something that you noted, that it's largely progressive women. What's Mm -hmm. happening with Republican women? Yeah. So at the Center for American Women in Politics, we focus particularly on women running for office. So our data is really focused on potential or likely women candidates in this cycle. We're a little early to do, you know, who's officially running, but (laughs) who is likely to run. Um, And what we see is that the increases and the pink wave that you've heard about Mm -hmm. is really concentrated primarily among Democrats. There are small increases from the last cycle among Republican women at some levels of office, um, but the increases are basically in line with previous years. Um, Whereas among Democratic women, those increases are incredible. Um, You know, we're seeing double the number of women uh, Democrats running for the U.S. House this year in comparison to 2016. Um, And go ahead. Go ahead. How are the women who are starting these campaigns getting funded? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think they're all probably struggling to figure that out as well. Um, so one thing that the Center for Responsive Politics found, and they found this looking at the first six months of 2017, was that there were more women donors in the mm. pool. In other words, that these candidates in part might be getting more money from more women who are donating who hadn't given to political candidates in the past. Um, women are just more likely to give to philanthropic issues or nonprofits than they are to give to political candidates. So that may be one way they're getting financed. Um, there are some that are targeted. I'm sorry. Can... I get... Yes. I lost you for a second. One of the things that I think that's interesting you're talking about is that it seems like there are layers, um, different stages of involvement that go from how we start as an individual. Do we go out and march? Do we register to vote? Do we show up to vote? And then we're seeing that people are exercising the power of the pocketbook into where mm-hmm. they're donating with con- political campaigns. And that's even before they're engaging at a professional level. Um, so it's really interesting to hear these stats and how they're growing. Um, by the way, if you want to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. That's one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to know, did you march? Are you registered to vote? Are you voting? What are you doing in response to the world around you? Um, Are you taking action around the things that you're upset, Democratic or Republican? We'd really love to hear from you. And we'd love to know um, how you're responding to the world around you. Anyway, let me get back to Kelly. So, Kelly, (laughs) um, hi. Sorry about that. (laughs) That's okay. So, I want to think through this kind of like staging of activism, of involvement. You know, as I was saying before, it sounds like we see women, you know, women voted. There's the question of are more women registering to vote? Do we see any progress there? Mm -hmm. Uh, So here's the thing. Women have always out-registered and outnumbered men in terms of voting. Um, I I shouldn't say always, since 1980. So we've had a gender gap in both of those numbers. So are more women registering? We don't know the official numbers uh, by demographics at this point. We'll know in the census. Um, But our presumption is that's not where we have a problem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. So... So that's a good that's a good point. So in terms of your stages, women are already advantaged there. The question is, do the registered 
uh, women vote and at what rates. And typically, historically, we, we see high rates of turnout. To give you one uh, data point in recent elections that might be telling, um, in the Alabama Senate race, um, black women were uh, turned out at the highest rates of any group. Um, and that's not necessarily surprising. They had also turned out at the highest rates in the presidential elections in both 2008 and 2012. Um, but it's key, and they are a key constituency, particularly if you're a Democrat running nationwide um, in this next election cycle. So motivating women to vote is an important part of this process. Sure. Yeah, of course. Now let's talk about the next level of engagement. So that's, you know, as a citizen, those are things we all get the right to do and hopefully are enacting. We have moments like the march, and now we're seeing um, people voting with their pocketbooks by donating mm-hmm. to campaigns. Um, mm-hmm. Then you also noted that there, and this was also mentioned in um, the wonderful Time Magazine article um, mm-hmm. about the Avengers um, that's out this week, and about women becoming political operatives. Can you talk sure. to us about what a political operative does, and if women want, what kind of skills are needed, and if when, women want to get involved in that level, how do they go about doing so? Sure. I think this is an understudied area. Um, uh, when I wrote a book on uh, women in campaign strategy or gender and campaign strategy, I was looking at the underrepresentation of women as campaign professionals. And we don't, I think, spend enough time talking about it. So what campaign professionals do, um, you know, is a real range of things. There are professionals who are consultants who are working on strategy um, and messaging. There are fundraisers, so folks who are raising money for candidates and helping to ensure that campaign finances are in order. Uh, there are also those folks who are focused explicitly on media, um, who are generating campaign ads, who are uh, constructing strategies in order to be sure that a candidate's message is getting out to as many people as possible. Um, so on any given campaign, the need for a real range of expertise is there. The question is, do you uh, have both men and women who are not only Qualified. I think there are plenty of women qualified for these positions. Um, but are they being tapped? Are they being recruited? Are they being um, identified as campaign professionals? Um, and one way that we can increase the number of women in this field, uh, or in these fields, multiple fields really, uh, is to both be sure that women know it's an option, um, talk about why it's so important to have women's voices at these decision-making and strategic uh, tables, and also give women some skills and entree into these networks um, that they haven't always had access to. So our program, Ready to Run, which is a campaign training program in New Jersey, but we also have programs throughout the country, um, is targeted at women who are thinking about running for office. But we always invite women who also want to learn how to run campaigns because they'll learn many of the same skills um, if they come to our training. So there are other trainings like that nationwide. And sometimes the parties will put those on as well for women who are interested in working at that level. Um, included in this, the skill sets that are needed in running mm-hmm. campaigns, would you include analytics as an important part of it now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, there's now really a big data push on campaigns. And so there are always, there's always hiring of people who can analyze, collect data, um, and also then m- generate sort of strategy based in that data. So targeting and micro-targeting voters, 
um, understanding and manipulating a voter file, which has mass amounts of data. So those skills are incredibly useful. And another one that I didn't mention um, is uh, now social media and online media engagement, um, which is another is tied to data, of course, mm-hmm. because you're using that data. Um, but another skill um, that is now an asset to campaigns. Okay, I want to take a few steps back because we know that Reading to Run is this amazing resource for women like you or me who might want to get involved in this. I went to the march, though, with my 15-year-old daughter and one of her best friends, and I watched them get electrified. And my daughter's increasingly talking about how can she make a difference. If we have young women who, like you said, we want to put them in the pipeline, we want them to know that these are opportunities for them, and if they want to get involved, how do they prepare for them? What Mm -hmm. would be, how do you build the skill set? What kind of education would you seek? What would you do to develop a resume that would land you there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the great thing about, I think, campaigns is that they come, people come to them from very diverse paths. Um, so there isn't necessarily one set resume you need either to be on a campaign or to run for office. So you don't have to major in running a campaign. No, no, not at all. Um, you know, we do have um, here at Rutgers Camden, we actually now have a digital politics uh, specialization for folks who do want to, you know, perhaps do that specifically. But you don't need that. In many cases, it's more about getting experience, quite frankly, and making connections. Um, and so I think a lot of, for young people especially, who want to start getting involved in campaigns, a lot of it starts with getting involved in a campaign, you know, whether on a volunteer basis um, or on a part-time basis, making some of those connections with folks who are in that world um, and expressing to them your interest while also learning from people who have been doing this for a while. So that's one way um, to get involved is to just really start volunteering and showing up. Um, And then, you know, there definitely are skills that you could develop through education. Obviously, that will help you. So if you're interested in the communication side of things, um, maybe think about that route in the work that you take on, as well as the, the classes you might take at the collegiate level. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar, a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. If you'd like to join the conversation, you want to ask Kelly about how you can get more involved in making political change happen, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So this is all really interesting about how it, it seems like it's more permeable than people would mm-hmm. think, that if you get active in a campaign locally, um, mm-hmm. it, there are multiple doors into be- becoming a political operative. What's the kind of timing? When are the times of the year where things start to mobilize and you're likely to have the best shot of getting in the door? Yeah, and that really does depend on the level of office you want to be working on, as well as the state or locality you're working in, right? So um, we run our Ready to Run program in March in New Jersey, uh, because that's around the time at which things start to amp up in terms of an electoral cycle. Um, you know, opportunities are starting to arise. Um, people are filing for candidacy, things like that. So you want to look at the level that you're interested in working on, uh, as well as the particular deadlines in that state. A key date to look at is what is the filing deadline for candidates? 
Um, and then uh, you want to be looking a little before then, right? Before a candidate is officially locked and loaded as a candidate, they're going to start building their team uh, before then. And so try to go back a few months or a few weeks, depending on the level again, um, and then be reaching out and making those connections to a candidate. Uh, so it will really vary um, based on the cycle and the, the level of office. For people who want to get involved, not in a particular campaign, but in, say, mm-hmm. mobilizing the vote, what's the most impactful way for people to get involved there? Are there opportunities and what skills will they learn in the process? Sure. Um, so I think in voter mobilization, it's, there are there are nonprofit groups that, that focus specifically on this effort to be sure that everybody knows that they, you know, have access to register, that they're registered, that they know when to vote, that they know where their polling places are. Um, so one way to get involved, obviously, is to look up organizations who are really committed to that. Um, and a lot of times it's volunteer efforts um, to, to do so. Um, you can also spread awareness on all of this stuff now that we have access to social media and find ways to be sure that you're sharing that information in your own communities, both virtual communities and in, in live communities. I think the skills developed for working on um, the voter mobilization piece is on a very general level, uh, there's just a, an awareness, a knowledge of how our political system uh, is working. So you just develop a sense of not only how it works, but then how sometimes it's manipulated, both for good and for bad. <laughs> right. um, what we're seeing with voter mobilization and and um, attempts to sort of squell voting um, in certain areas uh, is in part because people are, you know, are, are putting out false information or they're creating or writing laws that make it harder to register. Um, so I think part of it is just really a greater understanding of what barriers are in the way, as well as how we can make it easier to be sure that everybody does have access to vote. Um, and then there are skills that are more specific to voter mobilization if you're trying to mobilize for a candidate. Um, and those are around, again, things like targeting, understanding how to manipulate data so that you you know who voted the last time, who's most likely to vote for you this time. Um, what are the messages that best resonate with them? So a lot of those skills are related to both data manipulation as well as um, looking at research and polling and being able to translate that into messages. So what were the mechanisms that um, generated the outcome in Alabama? You know, I think there was a lot of uh, mobilization on the grounds uh, in terms of grassroots mobilization of voters. It seems like what they did effectively um, is to, again, target the, the most reliable voters. Um, so what, especially on the Democratic side, what has often been both a debate <laughs> among Democrats and perhaps a problem, depending on the way you look at it, um, has been there's always an effort to uh, persuade uh, voters, so persuade swing or independent voters in the middle. And that's important in any election, and they did that in Alabama, so I don't want to discount that. But there's also a secondary piece that sometimes is, I think, overlooked, which is mobilizing your base in terms of numbers. Mm -hmm. And so in Alabama, the percentage of not only African-American women, but also African-American men that turned out Republican, but they may have stayed home. And so mobilization in that model is to make sure you maximize your overall numbers 
of your very reliable voters. If you get that person to the poll, they're going to vote for you. They're not a question mark. Um, and so it seems to me I'm not uh, I don't know all the background data in Alabama, but I think that that is part of the story there is that they were at least effective at mobilizing those voters. And I know what Doug Jones said on election night um, seems to be true. He had a lot of support um, from very targeted communities. So the African-American community, particularly in churches throughout the state, really mobilized um, in order to encourage their constituencies and their communities to vote. They really made sure that they they uh, talked about how very important this election was. So h- how much of mobilizing voters is about inspiring them to make a point of voting? And how much of it is physically helping people get to the polls who can't get there otherwise? I don't know what the percentage is. Um, I think that um, I think probably it's a little bit more of the inspiring, um, <laughs> but it is both. Um Because I think when you inspire a voter, when you sort of get them uh, angry enough, passionate enough um, that they really want to make their voices heard, they find a way to do it. Um, We've seen voters historically um, against all odds vote um, because they felt so deeply that it was important to them. I mean, women in the earliest days when they couldn't vote were still showing up at polling places and getting arrested. Um, So (laughs) you... You have women, you have folks who who are really willing to do it as long as they know why they're doing it, what the stakes are in the election. And I think if you can make the case that the stakes are high and that your voice counts, um, that you can get people to the polls. That's not to say that the, the actual bringing people to the polls isn't important. Um, you know, we in this country don't, again, we make it a, a bit hard for people. I shouldn't say a bit hard. We make it I mean, hard it's for hard. people to vote. <laughs> yeah. Um, people have to figure out where they're voting. Um, they have to get there. Choose it's it, also it's election day is a work day, right? <laughs> it's a work day. Um, and so, there have been efforts, of course, as you've seen across the country, to do mail-in voting, um, you know, in Oregon where you do all-mail voting. Um, and those attempts are to try to ease those particular challenges of mobilizing voters physically. To the when, in, in states where they have those options, is turnout greater? Oh, that's a good question that I just don't know right now. <laughs> okay, so we'll put um, that on the list of things know. to yeah. find out. Yes, because then we know that as we're trying to advocate to get more people out, is that a place to put our energies or not? Yeah, and I think it's yeah, the key is to look at comparable election cycles, right? Because it is those two things that factor into each other. But yeah, um, it's a good question. And I will say internationally, um, you know, there are other indicators of what would help us get higher turnout. You know, in some countries they have mandatory voting or mandatory vote, uh, voter registration. Uh, And those things do seem to, of course, affect the turnout levels. Right. My daughter was, you know, ignited about the idea of why aren't um, 18 year olds just automatically registered to vote? Uh, It's uh, a big question mark for a lot of people. Why? Why don't we do that again? Because it adds in another layer of difficulty. People assume a lot of people assume they're registered. Um, and they don't know that they actually need to actively do so. So, yeah, it's it's a hurdle. Is that because the process is opaque or is it that people make the assumption that you have the right to vote so you just walk up and vote? Yeah, I think so. I think it's education. Um, right. So if we're told that, you know, this as long as you're this age, you have the right to vote, um, I think there is an assumption, unless educated otherwise, that you'd be able to do so. 
Um, we see that in primaries as well happen much more often for people who are politically sort of more politically astute who think that they're registered as a party in some states and they are and then they can't vote. Um, so part of it is just education. Um, and relatedly in schools, especially now, we have actually seen a decline in civics education. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is partly where you would get that information. So you'd be in a high school civics class that would give you the sort of toolkit. Here's all you need to know um, about being an active and engaged voter and citizen. Um, to the degree that that educational institutions aren't required to provide civics anymore, uh, that's one point of contact for voters that we miss. And it may delay people's entry into the voter pool because they didn't know they had, they had to, to register separately. Are we seeing are there is it consistent across parties or is voter turnout um, different depending on the election and the party involved? So this is a tricky one because we don't actually measure turnout by party. Um so there are ways that researchers have, have obviously tried to do that. But the major um, the major turnout mechanism, or I should say data, is through the U.S. Census. And the census doesn't ask for partisanship. Mm. Uh, so you can sort of pontificate about it, you know, based on other <laughs> demographic uh, characteristics. But we don't have clear data that say that, you know, Democrats are more likely to turn out than Republicans. Instead, what we have are exit polls in any given state that just tell you who were the um, majority of voters in that particular race or in that particular election. Um, And so that's really much more based on the population makeup. And then it tells us about if Democrats or uh, Republicans are more reliable. So I don't think we actually have good good data on that. So in a way, it's hard to to get the data that would allow us to develop a prescriptive a prescriptive plan. It's more that we get the data to analyze what happened. Yeah, I think when it comes to to that, I mean, I think there are other polls that will ask, you know, just more public opinion type polls that will ask about, you know, access to voting and things like that. You could get at it um, in that way and ask about all those demographic char- uh, uh, characteristics that might correlate with voter challenges. So, for example, you know, there's obviously evidence about urban and rural areas Mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, the farther you are from a polling place, it's harder. uh, You might be less likely to show up. You have more barriers to voting. Um, And so there are certain there are also certain states where certain laws make it harder um, because you need an ID or uh, there is no absentee option, uh, you know, or mail in option. So I think that's more where we see the correlations more so than a particular sort of party um, dynamic. And then by correlating those things, that would drive the strategy of any given political party and getting people out to the polls. Exactly, because then they can identify what the challenges are. And again, the voter file, which is just a massive database that candidates um, buy into, basically, they purchase um, access to, um, it, it includes all sorts of information, but among that information may be things like, did they vote in the last three cycles, right? And, um, you know, what are their, uh, what was their, can we figure out their ideological leanings from some other indicators um, in the type of things they buy, the types of groups right. their membership, they're members of, um, and then the campaign staff will try to figure out some patterns. So who were the least likely to vote based on these other characteristics? 
Um, We need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, we're not only going to talk about voting, but who we're voting for uh, with Kelly Dittmar from the Center for American Women in Politics. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our continued discussion about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and and lead in the workplace. And today, we're talking about how we get women to do all of that in politics. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director for Wharton People Analytics, and I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Rutgers University, Camden, and a scholar at the Center for American Women and Politics. Kelly, welcome back to Women at Work. Glad to be here. So before the break, we were talking a lot about um, how people get involved in politics, how we get individual voices heard, whether it's, you know, voting, um, but now all the way up to running for office. So as you're starting to see the women who are coming to Ready to Run and are getting involved, um, oh, what do you think their motivators are? What are you seeing as the patterns? Yeah. So I think historically what our research has shown in terms of what motivates women has really been uh, about making a policy difference. You know, that there is something in particular, substantively, uh, that you care about, that you are mobilized to act on. Um, Whereas for men, actually, when we surveyed male state legislators and we said, what was your sort of primary reason for running for office? It was because I always wanted to be an elected official. Um, so for for women, it's really about the substance over the position, the power. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in this cycle, what I think is adding to and sort of fueling that that motivation is a sense of urgency um, and a perception of threat among particularly, again, progressive women. Um, and, and of course, some conservative women as well. But there is definitely a reaction to this administration and to Donald Trump um, and a perception that he is threatening to um, or is trying to dismantle some of the rights that women have gained over the years um, and that there is a need to stand up, speak out and engage in politics in a way women haven't before to be sure that we can hold that ground. Um, so that's the urgency that I think is different in this moment than we've seen in previous years. A, a comparable year might be um, many folks have compared it to 1992 the quote-unquote year of the woman where we also saw a large sort of surge of women candidates and women winning. And in part, what was happening that year, of course, was, again, a national attention uh, to ways in which women had been disempowered um, or violations of rights against women in the case of Anita Hill Mm -hmm. testifying on Capitol Hill. Um, And also simultaneously a recognition of the underrepresentation of women. Um, and so in 1992, it was because we were all tuned into the TV and we could see the all white male judiciary committee questioning a black woman about sexual harassment. In 2016, it was watching one of the most qualified women candidates, uh, most qualified presidential candidates we've ever, ever seen, yeah. uh, who is a woman, uh, lose to a man who even across the board, even among Republicans, there was a recognition that he had a lot of 
uh, didn't have as many qualifications and, in fact, had more of the sort of ethical and scandals and problems. Um, and so I think that that was also an eye-opener to what will it take to get more women in these positions of power. Um, and for many women, that urgency led to, well, it'll take people like me stepping up. And so that's what they're doing. So I want to flip for a minute and talk about which candidates get voted for. Because in the context of the last election, it also seemed, in many cases, a conflict between substance and position, that there was... Um, a big part of what happened was because of people's discomfort of seeing women in the position of the presidency and um, having that drive decision making over the substance of policy and experience. How is that playing out? How do we fix that with the next wave of candidates coming forward? So I think we have to be very cognizant of the sort of nuance of this, right? Because what we found in research is that that gender bias, right, mm -hmm. is, is really not so much at the ballot box. In other words, we don't think people are going to the ballot box and saying, I'm not voting for her because she's a woman. Um, thankfully, we don't think that's happening in many cases. Um, because when you look at partisanship, that's really the key indicator of vote choice. So, you know, if you're a Democrat, you vote for the Democrat. If you're a Republican, you're going to vote for the Republican. That does not mean, though, that gender doesn't factor into your evaluation of a candidate and your treatment of a candidate throughout the campaign cycle. Um, and so what were the questions that we were asking? What was the scrutiny that we were placing on a female candidate that was different than the male candidate in 2016? And that's where I think you see some of those clear gender patterns. Um, things like honesty and ethics. Why did we hold Hillary Clinton to a higher standard of honesty and ethics than we held Donald Trump? Well, that might be rooted in our stereotypical expectations that women are supposed to be more honest and ethical. And we just assume men um, are less ethical or, you know, use locker room uh, talk or rhetoric. Um, so the, our assumptions really guide how we evaluate candidates and that can work to the disadvantage of women. So how do we change that? I mean, we change that by doing a little bit of self-reflection. Um, I always tell my students, be sure you're checking the questions that you're asking about candidates um, and, and question yourself. Are you asking those same questions about the men? Mm -hmm. Are you holding men and women to the same standards on qualifications, on certain character traits? Um, so and, I, I want to pause yeah. for a second because I think you've pointed out something that's really interesting and important that – um, you know, we've talked a lot here with you in, in the work that we're collectively doing about how pernicious our subconscious biases can be, um, sure. all of us, men and women alike. But that it's interesting that what you're finding is that the biases didn't emerge at the moment that we pulled the lever. It was that yeah. they penetrated the discourse that preceded that moment in multiple places for months. That's right. So there's a really great, uh, a great study. My colleague Tessa DeSanto has done some great work on sort of how we evaluate candidates. Um, and one thing that she found, for example, and this was in an experimental study, so just generic male and female candidate, not necessarily running for president. Um, but she found that voters or participants were more likely to seek out inf information about the female candidate's competency for office holding than they were for men. So that's like a, that's a clear example, right, of this difference in evaluation. 
we're more concerned, voters in her finding, voters are more concerned about women's competency than they are about men's competency. And why is that? Because, well, we've always seen women leadership, so they must be competent, right? Um, whereas for women, they're new, they're different. And so we have to be assured that they can fit the role, that they can do the job. And then they wind up being scrutinized in a different way than the men are being scrutinized. Yeah, I think because we hold different expectations of gender. And so we're asking women to fit a masculine role or what has been a masculine role of office holder, of president. Um, so we're asking them to adapt to those characteristics, character traits, et cetera. Um, so you have to be tough. You have to be strong. You have to be assertive. But then we're also saying, oh, well, we're kind of uncomfortable with women in those roles. <laughs> right. So you should also feed the, uh, meet the expectations of your gender. Um, so you can't be too tough or too assertive because that violates those norms. I remember um, you know, we, the yeah, first time ahead. that we spoke, it was right after the Democratic Convention. And we talked about what was the very um, conscious strategy of Hillary being presented as a grandmother and as mm -hmm. a caretaker. That at the same time that they were cultivating and she was cultivating and demonstrating presence and strength and clarity – um, it became an important part of strategy that we found a r way to relate to her as a benevolent, strong woman, and the grandmother was the model. Yep, exactly. Well, and then part of it, too, is I think we may have even talked about this at the time. Um, we also value, particularly at the presidential level and in the United States, we talk a lot about authenticity. So you have to be authentic, right? Um, and to be authentic for women candidates, can be difficult because they're asked to meet these very different expectations. So for men, meeting expectations of masculinity is sort of natural. They don't mm -hmm. have to behave necessarily differently. Now, they have their own pressures, right, to be sort of masculine enough, but it's in line with what is expected. And what's um, cultivated so, throughout their lives. Exactly. Socialization, et cetera. For women, they're trying to meet these different and sometimes conflicting uh, expectations. And with those conflicting expectations, it's this irony that um, if we want women to be authentic, yet we don't, we're not comfortable with the complexity of that authenticity, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, exactly. So as in the work of preparing candidates, um, how do you help them cope with that double-edged sword? Yeah. So I think this is always evolving. Um, you know, great folks who do sort of on-the-ground work um, and, and some polling, folks like Lake Research Partners and those, um, the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, who, you know, are always doing new surveys and new experimental studies to try to understand where voters are at in terms of evaluating women candidates. Um, and we rely on them largely to tell us sort of where is the public, you know, where what what is a, an effective strategy? Um, what are effective messages in order to put out there for women? Um, so I think one thing that we have found, at least in the last couple of years from some of that research is that, yeah, there are different things that women might need to do at the start of a campaign. So prove their credentials credential themselves early. It may be something that um, seems unfair. Why do women have to do that to a degree that men don't have to? But again, if you're talking about just how are you successful, that's what you need to do. So you talk about your resume. You talk about the things you have done. And more importantly, I think related to that, what um, the Lake Research partners have found is you talk about results. 
What mm-hmm. results have you gotten, whether it be in business, whether it be in your community activism? Um, but that is a real selling point. And it's a selling point for men and women, but it, it really helps to credential women to those who may otherwise doubt those credentials. Because it leapfrogs um, the question of whether you're able to because you're proving that you did. Ex- you're proving that you did. Exactly. By so the way, one of the big ways. Yep. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kelly Dittmar, a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics. If you want to join in the conversation, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, um, what's, how do you see... Hashtag Me Too and the growing acknowledgement of how epidemic sexual harassment is. Um, how do you see it impacting this wave of women candidates and what's going to happen as we see this year's political campaigns unfold? I think there's sort of two ways. So one is on the campaign side, um, I think that it's motivating women to make their voices heard. And I think I sort of alluded to this earlier um, that when we talk about women speaking out and being feeling empowered uh, to tell their stories, um, that type of empowerment can translate into feeling empowered to be sure their voices are heard in political spaces. So I, I think in one way, there's just a general, it can be motivational or inspirational mm-hmm. to women um, to get involved um, and to, again, feel that empowerment of this moment. Um, But on a a second and maybe more specific level, I think there is a recognition that those people who are making policy around sexual harassment, sexual assault, um, violence against women um, need to be women, Mm -hmm. that women need to be at those tables. And so, again, that sense of urgency might be greater in this moment because there's a real attention to um, solutions. So first we're talking about identifying the problem. You know, obviously this is a pervasive problem across industries, but as we move towards how are we going to fix it, we're starting to have the conversations, I hope and I think, about, well, how many women are in the C-suite dealing with this? Mm-hmm. How many women are in charge of these organizations that are having these problems? And how many women are in legislatures, are in Congress, that are going to be dealing with and putting into place legislation that changes these institutions and changes the rules of the game so that men and any violator um, cannot get away with this type of, of abuse. Um, and so we've seen across the country, for example, in state legislatures where they are in the process, in this very moment of changing a lot of sexual harassment reporting policies and um, uh, 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 efforts to be sure that there is more transparency and that there's training and all of that to change those institutions. A lot of those efforts are being led by women legislators. And it's a clear indicator of why it's so important that women are at the table. Not that it's the only issue that it matters, but it is one of many issues where really having women who've experienced this in their own life should be there talking about how um, best to prevent it. It's it's interesting. As you're talking with me about these things, it's helping me connect the dots between like the question that a friend asked, why should I go out and march on Saturday? Who does it serve? Is it just to scream at the sky? And mm-hmm. the the sense of rage that we have, but the question of how do we make a difference? And what you're helping me and I hope our listeners understand and see is that 
with the outcries, with each person's voice that we're hearing, whether it's in hashtag Me Too or whether it's the voices in the march, it's it's an affirmation, but it's motivating. It's it's exciting women to go and do something and energizing them to get involved, to, to realize that women can make a difference. And when we think about the political pipeline, you know, Congress is like the ultimate C-suite. And it shapes mm-hmm. the context in which private organizations operate, which is why having women at that level and um, voices in that conversation at that level that are going to create a context in which business can operate that's going to allow women to thrive within the private sector. And it really right. is all connected. Oh, it's, it's all connected. And I also think there's a, uh, the, a motivational piece that it's also tied to solidarity. So there's something about knowing that people are going to have your back. So part of the reason that we're seeing when more women come out with their stories is because they're being believed. Um, and unfortunately, for too long, they weren't being believed. So I, I, I do think as well that, again, translates into different industries. Um, if women are going to put their names, throw their hats in the ring as candidates this time, I think there is, at least among some, a perception that, look, I can bring with me all of these women at the march who care about the same issues I care about. I can mobilize them to help me on my campaign, to donate to my campaign. Um, and so that, I think, is, is equally you know, motivating in a very real sense. I have people, I have a community um, that will support me in whatever my, my effort is to speak up. Um, I want to talk about how we create a community of women across the aisle. That we know that there are different points of view and perspectives um, about how what policy should be enacted, how the country should run, but that still we want diverse voices in both sides of the conversation. What Mm -hmm. can we do? What's going on to try and get more women into politics on the Republican side of things and get their voices heard? Because even if they are, even while they're not progressive, and we know this whole movement is inherently progressive, we need their voices. They still bring a different and valuable perspective and are underrepresented. So what can we, what can we do, even if we're not Republicans, to encourage them to get involved? Yeah. Um, you know, at the center, we always say we're never going to get to parity just by electing more Democratic women. We need to elect more Republican women as well. Um, so what can we do? Um, there are a couple of things. One is uh, to, on the very structural side, uh, that there are just more, uh, there's more support. I talk about it as support infrastructure um, for Republican women. These are things like uh, funding organizations for women candidates. So Emily's List funds Democratic women candidates in huge, huge numbers. Um, There's no equivalent on the Republican side that provides that financial resource for women who want to run. So that's a problem. That's uh, on the financial side. uh, You could give to more Republican women candidates. Um, Two, on the training side, um, our organization and some other organizations do nonpartisan training. Um, But there's a lot of training programs that are really good and really effective, uh, but that are targeted at Democrats. Um, There is one or two um, that are targeted at Republican women, um, but there are, again, fewer of them. They're not as in in as many states. Uh, So that's a secondary problem. So can we create a more open and um, inclusive support infrastructure to be sure that Republican women know that they have the same resources and support to just get the the toolkit? You know, what do Mm -hmm. I need to do to run? 
The third problem I think is a little harder for us to, to tackle uh, individually, <laughs> um, especially if you identify as a Democrat, um, which is, a, is, a, is an institutional problem in the Republican Party. Um, so especially in recent years, there's been a real push against identity politics. You hear Paul Ryan um, or Ryan Scribus for years has said, we're not the party of identity politics. That, that's those Democrats. And uh, identity politics is divisive and it's a negative thing. The problem is, if you're trying to recruit and target and support women candidates, for many people, that is viewed as identity politics in a positive way. You know, we're trying to be sure that there are greater numbers. And so we are actually playing identity politics because we think that there should be more of a certain identity in our midst. Um, And also, isn't it by refusing to play identity politics, it means the default setting is white male, period. Right. So that would definitely. And that's an identity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. My argument would be that they everybody's playing identity politics. Um, and, and to your point that it's misleading to say otherwise. But I do think, you know, regardless of, of sort of where I, I obviously come from a perspective where I work at a center for women in politics. But I think it's important to understand that philosophical barrier that we have on the Republican side, because it does put Republican women in a difficult situation if they want to make efforts to, to recruit and support women specifically. They, they get they, they're often there's often pushback, I'm sorry, to them, right? So um, how do we help and support them? And maybe part of it is by reframing or making a case uh, better to their party leadership about the importance and the value of having women. Um, We try to do that on the voter side, you know, to say to them, look, like there's a big gender gap um, in terms of partisan voting. Maybe if you had more women, we know women don't just vote for women, but, um, you know, there are opportunities to sort of foster some of that empathy um, and affinity, um, and they, they aren't doing that. So the question is, how do you motivate the party to prioritize women's representation and inclusion? Um, and that's been a harder nut for us all to crack. So as we go in, in the process of trying to understand how the country's feeling, how people are thinking, we know that in the... Um, in the lead up to the campaign, so many people were caught by surprise because the forecasting all said Hillary, Hillary, Hillary. How is research and data gathering changing to not make the same mistake again so that we can get a more accurate understanding of where voters are? Yeah. You know, this is a little beyond my my area. Um, we don't uh, poll so our colleagues at the Eagleton Poll or some of my colleagues who do polling specifically would have a better answer for you um, about this. I mean, my understanding is that part of it is thinking about how, um, you know, it's very specific strategies. Like, for example, are we including cell phones? Um, are we polling? Are we getting people that are representative across age groups and demographic groups? Um, that has been that was part of the problem in 2016 and in previous years. Um, are we doing online polling and who does that exclude or include? Um, so there's a lot of methodological challenges that I don't know that there are actually answers to, but people are at least trying to investigate what is the most accurate. Um, I also think part of it is it just it's a, it's a resources problem. Um, so a lot of what we saw in 2016 was that the state polls where there were low sample sizes um, and they were trying to do them too frequently so they didn't put enough resources in, perhaps um, they were inaccurate. 
whereas the national polls actually were pretty accurate at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and so that's another challenge. And, and I don't know how you, again, how you solve that. Um, part of it, um, you know, would be to put more resources in. And then you have other people, of course, who are saying, well, why put more resources in? It's totally inaccurate. <laughs> right. Um, um, so, so this is a debate. Indeed. So I want to switch with the last few minutes that we have left um, to for women who do want to get involved, first steps that they can take to get involved in running for office, um, to get involved in Ready to Run. Sure. So um, for Ready to Run specifically, our program is on March 9th of this year in New Jersey, but we have programs throughout the country. So if you go to our website at cawp.rutgers.edu, you'll find information about not only the New Jersey program, um, but again, programs in about 20 states across the country if you're interested in running for office. Um, we also on the website have uh, what is called our political resource map. Uh, and that's a map where you can literally choose your state or choose the type of resource that you're looking for, a training program, a funding organization, a leadership development program, um, just a general women's organization that might be supportive to you. Um, and those organizations are all listed by state as well as nationally. So that's another place where you can start because what you want to do is not only uh, not all women need to be trained. A lot of women have the skills they need to run already. But some of these trainings at least give you the nuts and bolts of how to file um, and how to get your signatures and how to build your team. So they're helpful. If you can't attend a training, finding these other resources might help you build your network. So your network within the state, um, and if you're running nationally, nationally, um, of groups that can be supportive uh, to you, both on a strategic level uh, as well as at a financial level and, of course, in vote among voters in terms of support. So those are two immediate steps, um, resources that are available on the web, um, and then programs in person that you might consider to start. Kelly, I can't thank you enough for your insight, your dedication to the work you're doing, and for joining us on Women at Work today. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat about this. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about in the next year. Indeed. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow us on at BizRadio111. A special thank you to Kelly Dittmar and also to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on, Win- on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School.